All right, how is everyone tonight? Better than they deserve. Yeah, good deal, good deal. Good to see everyone. Uh, do we, uh, we enjoy our break last week? I mean, anyone do anything productive? You have a break this week. Okay, we should... Fair enough, fair enough. Well, it's good to be back. Feels like it's been forever, though. That one week, it does. That was a long, long break there. So, all right. Well, let's, uh, let's jump to it tonight. Uh, so, it has been a week. So, let's... Am I on? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's go back over this. Let's see how well we're doing um, if we forgot any of this. So, if we need to label our tabernacle, right, uh, what, what would this be? Okay, the altar burnt offering. <laughs> the leap. Yeah. All right, and then once you come into the tent of meeting here, what's on the south end? Lamp lamp stand. Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. What's up here? Showbread. Altar of incense. Veil. Holy of Holies. Or the, that's is the Holy of Holies. That's the Ark of the Covenant. Thank you. And what's on the Ark of the Covenant? Mercy seat. All right. All right, let's have a word of prayer, uh, and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll jump into our lesson tonight. <clears throat> Father God, we're grateful tonight. We're thankful uh, for uh, this, uh, this evening that we have to come together here and to study your word. Uh, Father, we're thankful for those who participate in this every week, and um, we pray for uh, just wisdom tonight as we examine your word, um, that we would see how to use it and, and how to apply it in our lives. And um, Father, I do pray that we are... Um, you know, rightly seeing uh, how to divide this into into our lives here, that we know what to do with it and how to use it, how to share it with other people, um, that your truth would prevail in, in all matters here of our life, that we can get our life uh, on the right pattern that you've given us. And so we pray for that honesty and, and we pray for the wisdom that we need to, uh, to see how to use these things. We're thankful and uh, we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so... Uh, Every week, we you know we we kind of looking at this from that aspect of being being a priest and hoping that each week that means something more than it did the week before. And you know I think that's that's one aspect of this. You know, we can see the pattern uh, and we can see how things line up with the church. Hopefully, you're seeing how even the plan of salvation lines up with the tabernacle pattern. Um, you know, there's a lot of important lessons uh, you know to to pull out of this, but. You know, the one that we can't afford to miss is what it means to be a priest before God, to serve Him in His presence, to have that relationship with Him, to have that access, that privilege, the responsibility. Uh, and as we go through the tabernacle, you know, we, we see that, uh, like I said, just, just how important that is with all this. So First Peter chapter 2.9, to get us started tonight, says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Okay? And so, like I said, each week we're going through this, we're looking at this from the, from the, the lens of what does it mean to be a priest before God. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the barriers. Every aspect of this, there's, there's physical barriers that God has set in place 
to help us understand, you know, uh, holiness, um, the, the issues of sin, uh, what it means to have access to Him, what it, what it means to be in a better position because of what Christ has done for us. These are important lessons to understand. Now, what we've done, let's take the last three weeks because we've been specifically inside of the holy place here. Uh, we have talked about the lampstand, okay? We've talked about the uh, table of showbread. Today we're moving on to the table or the altar of incense. Um, a couple things that we've got to get uh, that we can't forget about. Okay, everything on the outside, okay, God set this up in a very physical way. What's the material of these two, two pieces of furniture made out of? Bronze. We go inside of here and how does it change? Gold, okay, so there's a physical barrier there. We see it physically. And then we also know that everything, whoop, nothing broke, we're good. I just, that thing's caused me problems. I know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he's just all over the place tonight, your equipment. Um, see, I lost where I was now. It's all right, I'll get there. The bronze, the barrier, thank you, yeah. And so, so we're, but we're seeing a difference, right, between what, what is going on on the outside, what's going on on the inside. We've been trying to, to, to reinforce this idea. Everything on the outside, okay, is dealing with what? That's where you deal with sin, right? You deal with, you know, the sacrifice for sins, the blood is shed on the altar, all of that's important. The priest is washing, why? Because we've been dealing with mankind, we've been dealing with the world, we've been dealing with sinfulness of man, and now we're going to go inside and we're going to deal with God. When we're on the inside, these things in the inside, they don't, these are not about how you deal with sin. The things on the inside is about dealing with our relationship with God. Okay, and so we talked about the lampstand. Well, you know, we need the Word of God so that we know how to serve God the way that He wants us to. Okay, and so we, well, that lamp was there so that we could see what's in front of it. And, it. and so literally, the lamp to our feet, the light to our path, we use the Word of God so that we know what to do, that we know how to serve. And if that lamp's not there, then God doesn't get what He wants. And there's no way around that. Any church that doesn't use the Word of God for what they're doing is not going to arrive at where God wants them to. You know, if you take the Word of God out of worship, out of church polity and leadership, out of the plan of salvation, if you take the Word of God out of any of it, it's not what God wants. There's no way you're going to accidentally do the right thing. Okay? And now you can't overemphasize that enough. One of the things that, that I think is... I don't know, to me, I guess it makes sense, but it's kind of striking is that we get the, 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 the idea through the Scriptures that there's going to be a lot of people surprised at, at their eternal outcome because they thought it was going to be good. And it turns out that it wasn't. You know, we, we look in Matthew chapter 7. Let's, let's take a look there. I, I know we've referenced it a bunch, but let's go to Matthew chapter 7. Okay, yeah, so let's, let's start here in 13 and 14. It says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. It's really important that this is worded this way. It's, there are few who find it. Okay, well, you know, you're not going to find something you're not looking for. 
Okay? I, I don't think necessarily that everybody is intentionally picking the, the wide road and the, and the broad gate. Uh, that seems to be the default status, you see. That, that if you want to get off of that road, you have to look for the narrow path. Right? Few find it because they're just not looking for it. And nobody is going to accidentally obey the plan of salvation. Nobody is accidentally going to live the Christian life. No one's going to accidentally repent. No one's going to one day show up uh, at, the, at the judgment seat of Christ and be surprised. I lived a life of faith. I didn't even know it. You know, it's not going to happen. Those things all take diligent effort on our part. They, they take conscience choices on our part. Faith is something that, 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 that you know, is, is determined by what we do with what the Word of God says. And so, at no point, you know, Noah built the ark according to the Word. He didn't just accidentally build what God wanted. You know what I mean? And so, and so it will be with our Christian life. There are, there are no accidental Christians. Okay? Now, if you go on down here, look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Okay? Now, there's no, there's no doubt in my mind that this crowd that Jesus is talking to is under the assumption that, that He was going to welcome them in with open arms. They assumed that they had a relationship with Jesus. Now, did they? He says, I never knew you. Which just screams there's no relationship here. And so, if, if there was, it was totally made up. It was in their mind only. You ever meet someone that knows you and you don't know them? That, I mean, that's a weird thing, okay? But it happens every now and then. That's kind of what's going on here. Oh, Jesus, we know you. You're our Lord. And he's sitting there looking at us. I don't, I don't even know who you are. Now, you know, I, I don't think that that's just the way this is worded, right? I mean, you get the account of the rich man and Lazarus. I think there's a reason that the rich man's not given a name. I, I don't believe that's a parable at all. I, I believe this is, this is factual, you know, what as, is happening. The rich man and Lazarus. But Lazarus, well, Jesus knows his sheep and he knows them by name. Well, what about this rich man? Yeah, matter of fact, what's the only thing that's important about that guy? As far as he's concerned, his riches were, was his God, right? And so he's, he's, he's identified in, as a rich man, not as, not as one, of, one of the Lord's people, not as one of the sheep in the flock. And so this idea that he never knew them, well, I, I, I believe that he never knew them, right? Uh, because there was no relationship there. But there's, there's no doubt that these people expected a relationship. You know, they expected the Lord to open them up. And so look at verse 21. He says, well, he says in 21, only those who do the will of my Father. And then they respond by saying, well, look what we've done. Okay? So Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Okay? And he, he, he accuses them of practicing lawlessness. And so, here's the thing. He does, does, he, does, he, does he argue with them about what they've done? Does he say that they didn't, in fact, not do those things? Okay, so let's assume they did. Okay, well, prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles. Has, has he required us to do those things? Has he commanded the Christian to do those things? No. So see, it's not just about I did something. You have to do the right thing. See, he, he, he has required us to be born again. 
He's required us to repent and to be baptized, right? He's required us to be faithful until death. See, there's a lot of things that we are required to do, but they did not do those things. They did something, but they didn't do what the Lord told them to do. And so because of that, what they practiced was lawlessness. I'm bringing all this up because tonight we're, we're talking about the altar. We're going to talk about the altar of incense. But to do that, you know, there's a, there's a part of this idea that the pattern doesn't match up with. And there's so much of the religious world that seems to be okay with not following the pattern. And, and, and those of us who know the truth about this seem to keep giving people the pass on this and, and overlooking it and acting like it's not a big deal. And we've got to realize what's at stake. If you don't obey the gospel, you don't get to go to heaven. You are not in Christ. You are not my brother or sister in the Lord. That's the fact. Now, those are harsh realities, but what good does it do any of us to, to, to smear the lines on that and start welcoming people into the Lord and, and into fellowship and those sorts of things who, who aren't actually able to be there? Do you see where we're going with this? Okay, so it's, it's really important. We, if, we ta- if we don't use the Word as the light, right? we take that out, and anything that we're doing, God doesn't get what He wants. We don't accidentally do the right thing. It has to be deliberate. Okay, it has to be deliberate. Okay, and so we talked about the lamp. We talked about the Lord's Supper two weeks ago, uh, making sure that we're doing those things according to the Word of God. But let's, let's get into the incense here. Let's turn to um, Exodus chapter 37. Exodus 37, we're going to go through 25 through 29. Okay. It says, He made the altar of incense. Exodus 37, verse 25. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. A cubit long, a cubit wide square, two cubits high. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold. Its top and its sides all around and its horns, and he made a gold molding for it all around. He made two golden rings for it under its molding on its two sides on opposite sides as holders for poles with which to carry it. He made the poles of acacia wood, overlaid them with gold, and he made the holy anointing oil and the pure fragrant incense of spices, the work of a perfumer. Um, I, you know, again, I think I've said this for the last three of these, but... The, this seems to be the most obvious one. I think the lamp stand was the most obvious one. The showbread was also the most obvious. These get pretty obvious, okay? Uh, but again, the Bible comes right out and tells us how the typology works, what this is a shadow of. Okay, let's turn to Psalm chapter 141. Psalm chapter 141. Okay, we're going to look at verse 2. Psalm 141, verse 2. It says, May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. Okay, and so even in the Old Testament, the connection with the incense and prayer was already being laid. Right, and what we're going to find out was it was, it was set up that way basically from the beginning of the tabernacle, but these are things where the, the, the typology, the lesson was being taught almost instantly, right? And so they knew that my prayer 
is, is like incense rising to God. Let's, let's go to Revelation chapter 8. And, and keep in mind, we're going to get through this. The last lesson is going to be a walk through the heavenly tabernacle because that's what, that's what cast the pattern, right? Was the, the tabernacle in heaven, the true tabernacle, not made with man's hands. And so we expect to find every aspect of the tabernacle in the book of Revelation as well. And so Revelation chapter 8, okay, verses 3 through 5, it says this. Revelation 8, 3 through 5. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. Okay? Now, in heaven, there is a golden altar before the throne. Right? The throne, the mercy seat of God, and there was a golden altar before it. And what, what's in the golden altar? Incense, okay? But it's being mixed with the prayers of the saints. Verse 4 of Revelation 8, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hands. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Okay? And so, again, this connection between prayer and and um, and the incense. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. Okay, this, this is important here because I, I think it's worth noting that this wasn't a mystery to the people, right? Even, even Old Testament scriptures make reference to prayers as incense and, you know, this seems to be the connection with incense and prayer was was something that was being made on a on a daily on a uh, you know it was being made daily um luke chapter 1 okay uh down in verse 10 actually let's back up just a minute um let's go to verse 8 Luke 1, eight. now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before god in the appointed order of his division According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Okay, and so every day when incense is being offered, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't random, right? There was a time set apart where this was happening. And what were the people doing while the incense offering was being made? It was, yeah, it was prayer. And so, you know, it, it, and there's, there's some connections here between the, 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 here it's referred to as the hour of the incense offering, okay? But it's referred to in other places as the hour of prayer, okay? We've even got some songs, I believe, that re reference that sweet hour of prayer, okay? But this, this, would be, this has become a custom, okay? That, that there was a time when they came to the temple and they prayed, and that was the same moment that the incense was being offered up. And so, like I said, this, this connection between the, the physical incense, you know, and, and, and the, the type, anti-type, the reality, I don't, rem I don't remember. <laughs> the anti-type is the reality, yes. 
The type is the physical anti, yeah. Um, so yeah, so between the, the, the incense and then the, the spiritual reality being the prayer, I mean, they're living that out on a daily basis. And so those connections are being, are being made. Now, here's, here's what's really important because we, we, we can't miss the fact that, again, sin is dealt with on the outside and everything in here is about the priest's service and relationship to God, Okay. Everything going on inside that holy place is about the priest's service and relationship with God. We know this for a couple reasons. Okay, in order to be in here, what must you be? You must be a priest, right? Anybody who wasn't a priest don't get to go in. Okay, what's what what else, you know, uh, what what happens? What's significant about a priest? Why is he able to go in? Okay, he's qualified. And what else? Okay, set apart for it. Yeah, which is part of the qualifications, but specifically, God, God set him apart and made him holy, right? Which, which is to set him apart. He, he has been cleansed and he's been set apart and so he can now enter into the presence of God, uh, in the glory of God anyway, and he can perform acts of service and worship according to God's word that other people were not permitted to do. Okay, and so... Everything in the holy place, none of that was about becoming a priest. You didn't enter in there to become a priest. You, it's not like they gave you a trial run and said, okay, why don't you come in here and you know, play around with that lamp for a little bit, see if you can get any smoke rolling off this altar of incense, eat some of the bread, come out, tell me what you think. And, you know, if you did a good job, we'd make you a priest. It wasn't anything like that. It wasn't somebody who was sitting on the fence. You ever, you ever, you ever hear people make the statement, well, you know, at least if, if, if I'm right, it'll be worth it. And if I'm wrong, what have I lost? You ever heard that about becoming a Christian? Like that's the argument against people that don't want to do it. It's like, well, if you're wrong, you've lost everything. And if I'm right, I've gained everything. So in other words, it's almost like you might as well give it a shot just in case. Okay, well, you know, what, what's missing from that sort of mentality? Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's fire insurance. It's not faith. You know, it's, it's just check off all the boxes. You know, I met with one guy a couple years ago, sat down with him, and uh, he was a politician in town. And so he made sure that during election time to make sure that he, uh, well, he went to the Catholic church a good bit down the road. He'd stop in at the Methodist church. He'd spend some time at the Baptist organization, the Disciples of Christ over here. And he, and he told me, he said, my wife is a, is a member of this one over here. I'm a member of this one. I'm like, you all don't even go together. He said, well, we're just kind of checking all the boxes, all right? And so it wasn't about this faith either. You know, it's about keeping up appearances and, and that sort of a thing. But people have that approach to what they're doing in Christ. You know, they, they say, well, you know, I'm going to get baptized um, just to cross that off the list. And that way, if this all turns out to be real, at least I've, you know, I've, uh, at least I've got that one covered. Okay, well, what we're missing from that equation again is faith. And, and you know, there's no, there's no scenario in here where, you know, I mean, could you imagine bringing somebody to the tabernacle and saying, you know, that person saying, well, I don't know that I really want to be a priest but I'd like to experience it. 
You know what I mean? You, can I do a trial run for a week or two and kind of see what I think? And then that way, you know, if, if this matters, then I'll, I can at least say that I'm a priest when I need to, but I don't have to actually be committed to it. Because that's what people are really saying. I want to be able to say I'm a Christian if Jesus comes back. I want to be able to say I've obeyed the gospel, but I sure don't want to have to do anything I don't want to do right now or change my schedule or my lifestyle. And so I just want to get the the, you know, Dot the T's and cross the I's and those sorts. You know, make sure we've got it all checked off the list. It doesn't work that way, does it? There's, you know, there's no part of Christianity that works that way. I, I think what's so ironic about it, we hear about people faking it and being hypocritical and that sort of a thing. I, I don't really buy into I mean, I, I think there's phony Christians out there. Don't, you know, there's, there's phony, phony followers. But here's the thing. If you, if you were really trying to fake it, I think you would convert yourself. Because... I, so I heard a story, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know enough about the story. I know I heard it. It was on a, it was on a podcast, and, and it wasn't a Christian. Co- it was just, it was something else. And the guy was telling the story about how he had heard about a, a and, I, and like I said, it may not even be real, but I'm going to share it because I think it's interesting. Where this guy was married, and his wife was 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 a Christian of some sort. I don't know what she. You know, but anyway, he said she was a Christian. He wasn't, and it was important to her that he that he, he at least put his best foot forward with it, okay? And so his intention was to fake it, to please his wife. And so he decided that, you know, now he lives with his wife. So this is not just showing up on Sunday to impress everybody. So what he ended up doing is he made sure he read his Bible during the day, right? He prayed with her. You know, he, he, went, he went to church. He, he gave, you know, he did all. He ends up converting himself. And, and his conclusion was, if you were really going to try to fake it, you'd have to be the real thing because... Anything less than that is not a Christian. And, I, and I, it's a valid point, you know? I mean, anything less than all in is not a Christian. And so, I, you know, you don't see this idea in the tabernacle where a priest could kind of play games with this for a while before he decided to commit to it, right? And so everything that took place inside the, the tent of meeting were for priests. And these are people that have, you know, made this commitment and this is their life. It's not just something they do on the weekends or, you know, when they don't have anything else to do. It was a big deal. And so... You know, we, we see, um, the reason we bring this up is because prayer is one of those things, and we can look at this from a, def- a couple different things. One, I don't think you can fake a prayer life. Okay, now you can, you can fake it if you're praying in front of everybody at church on Sunday morning. You can act like you've got a good prayer life or whatever else. And, you know, I, I've seen denominational preachers at funerals and stuff like that reading their prayers because I'm assuming they've never prayed on their own, from their own heart ever in their life, you know, and things like that. So, you know, I, I, I think they're faking it there too, you know. But I, I think if you, for you to have a legitimate prayer life, I don't think you can fake it. I mean, because it's private. I mean, most of it's private. Not that it's, it's not also involved with your family and people around you. But I mean, if you're going to have a, a legitimate prayer life, it's, it's going to have to be, a, 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 you're going to have to be all in on that. The other thing is, you know, when we start looking at, how this thing fits into this, okay? We're, we're dealing with sin on the outside. We're dealing with things that pertain only to priests on the inside, pertaining to our service and our relationship with God on the inside. So you talk about showbread, and we, we said, okay, well, we talked about the remembrance and the importance of the covenant and the memorial that takes place around the Lord's Supper. That's for Christians, okay? We talked about the lampstand and how, as Christians, we need to use the Word of God so that we know what to do and how to serve, okay? And now we're talking about the prayers of the saints rising to the Lord as incense. Okay, and so we can't 
miss the fact that prayer takes place where priests go. And so everything that gets a priest ready to serve, that, that makes a man able to, to be in the presence of God, takes place on the outside. Everything that makes him able to stand in that place where he can light that incense happens on the outside. Now, what is without a doubt the most common false form of salvation offered today? Just ask Jesus into your heart. We even refer to that as the sinner's prayer. Okay. Now, there's a multitude of ways that this gets done, but the gist of it, in case you've been under a rock most of your life, is that you need to ask Jesus to come into your heart. Uh, sometimes you've got to fall at, at what they call an altar, which I, no one can define <laughs> what, what that even is. But you come and you pray at the altar and you feel Jesus come into your life and that sort of a thing. Sometimes, uh, you know, especially Baptist churches, they will have you say the sinner's prayer and so now you're saved as far as they're concerned, but then they'll baptize you. Okay, and this is what they, does anyone know what they call that? Okay, they call it a believer's baptism. And then if you ask them what it's for, they'll tell you it's an outward sign of an inward grace. Now listen, if you hear people talking like that, you need to know where that's coming from. Okay, because you know, we, the Church of Christ has a, has a serious problem when it comes to really making a difference in people's lives sometimes because sometimes the only question we'll think to ask is have you been baptized? And you realize that almost everyone can say yes to that. There's churches that spiritual baptize and there's no water involved. There's churches that will baptize by sprinkling water on an infant. There's churches that will baptize through a prayer. There's, you know, uh, right now, you know, they're, they're having virtual baptisms on, on virtual reality headsets in the metaverse, okay? Um, it happens, okay? And so if you're just going to ask people, have you been baptized? That's a, that's a horrible question to ask because it's not specific enough. Okay, and I, I think about that in, 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 in Acts chapter 19, right? We run across uh, some uh, disciples of Apollo there, and or Apollos there, and, and you know, what does Paul ask them? Well, yeah, he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized, right? And so he didn't just say, if, if, if he would have just asked, have you been baptized, what would they have all said? Yes, and would that have helped them? They, would have, lost, they would, have, would have walked away from that conversation. They'd have been lost, right? And so you've got to be more specific than that. And so whenever you hear people start saying things like an outward sign of an inward grace, uh, there's variations of that. Understand where that's coming from. What they are saying is someone was saved first and was baptized later to demonstrate it, to show it. That's, that's what they're saying, Okay. And so, in other words, what, what usually happens is you need to say the sinner's prayer and then we'll schedule a baptism down the road that, and, and, and usually we'll do a bunch of them at the same time because it's a big thing and you can get a photo shot. Your grandma and grandma can come in and gra grandma and grandpa can come in. And <laughs> well, well, today, who knows? Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, and so it, and that, that kind of becomes the thing. Um, but, but essentially what they're saying is it, it, it becomes... I had a preacher once tell me, well, you know, at least they baptize. How's that any better? 
Right? I mean, if that's all it is, just making sure people get dunked in the water, my goodness, let's stop explaining things. Let's just go out and dunk people underwater. It, you have to have faith in the work that God's doing at baptism, right? It's, it's faith, Colossians 2.12, faith in the working of God at baptism that raises us up with Him in Christ. And so, you know, the, the idea is not just were you baptized, you've got to be baptized for the right reason. But your faith in the work that God does at baptism needs to be present. You need to repent first, not after, right? Those things are important. Right? And we've got to stress this and we've got to teach this with people. So when you hear people say things like outward sign of an inward grace or some variation of that, what they're saying was their baptism was for a show and they were saved first. Now, according to the biblical pattern, where would baptism fall in the pattern? Here. And then you can enter into the presence of God and offer service as a priest. Part of that is what? Prayer. Who has the privilege to pray? Christians do. What about non-Christians? Okay. Sure he was. Sure he was. Yeah. Cornelius did pray. Yeah. Yeah. But what hides God's face from people? What, what causes him to plug his ears though? Our iniquities, our sin. You know, we've got to deal with our sin. Right? Before you're going to have a prayer life with, with the Lord, before that relationship with God's going to exist, sin has to be dealt with. Now, do we do we deal with it at prayer? Okay, now so you brought up a good point though. Let's let's kind of talk about that for a second. Okay, because this can be confusing. If if a Christian sins, what do we need to do about that? Okay, we need to repent. We need to confess in that. You know, we need to repent. We need to move forward. And we're told, let's, let's turn to 1 John real quick. Okay, because this is a question that gets asked, I get asked a lot uh, by, by new people that I'm studying with. And I love new people that I'm studying with because they ask the questions that people that have been sitting in the pews for a long time are embarrassed to ask. Right, And we get to that point where it's like, okay, we think we should know some of this stuff, and so we're not going to ask the question, even though everybody else is thinking the same thing. Right, So sometimes the new people, they'll ask what everybody else is afraid to ask, and I like that. Uh, and so the, sometimes they'll, they'll ask, okay, if baptism, okay, if that's where my sins are forgiven, what, what, what do I do if I, what, you know, what, what happens when I sin later? You know, if, if something happens later on, I've got sin in my life, how do I deal with it? Do I need to get baptized again? Okay. And, and, and of course, they don't need to be baptized again, right? But we got to explain, okay, if, if, if they need to repent, right? If they need to, need to repent, if they need to confess in that, those sorts of things, why didn't that work the first time? You, you see what I'm saying? So that can be confusing to people. So anyway, let's look here. First John, you're probably there. I'm not there yet. Chapter 2. <clears throat> okay. Verse 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Uh, you know, he goes on there. But here's the idea. Who's he writing to? Christians. And he says, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, if you are not in Christ, do you have an advocate with the Father? No. And so you need to be immersed to be put into Christ. That's why someone who hasn't been immersed into Christ 
can't just repent. That's why they have no advocate with the Father. They can't just pray and they, they can't ask for forgiveness. They can't repent. They have no advocate with the Father. You have to be in Christ first. But that's why we don't have to get baptized every time we sin. You see, you're, you're baptized for the forgiveness of your sins to receive the indwelling of the Spirit of God in your life. You are baptized into Christ. You're buried. You're, you're resurrected to walk in a newness of life. But now you have an advocate with the Father, which is a tremendous thing. And that's something they didn't get when, when John the Baptist was, was baptizing, right? He was baptizing for forgiveness, but they didn't get an advocate with the Father, right? They, they weren't put into Christ. Uh, they, they didn't receive, you know, they weren't connected with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ at that point. And so that's, that's good to know, right? Um, how do we get on this? Okay, asking for forgiveness. Yeah, so, so the idea though is, is that, you know, those who can have a prayer life, right, are those who have an advocate with the Father, a mediator between God and man. And if you're not in Christ, you don't have that yet. And so the, the problem with, uh, well, let's, you know, it's an outward sign of an inward, inward grace and those sorts of things is that it, it puts the, the, the laver and it puts the altar of incense, it switches them. Right, And so we're going to go straight to the incense and pray. And now we can go into the presence of God. And while we're in there, we're going to get baptized to show everybody what happened. That's, that's what they're advocating, right? The, the, you, you say this prayer to be saved and get baptized uh, into the church or get baptized to join our membership or you, know, you get baptized to show everybody what's the, the, the grace that's already been offered to you. It's, it's the pattern's completely backwards. Do we see that? Right, and so... You know, we, we don't deal with our sins here. We deal with it here, right? We're, we, we become a priest here. And in here, this is about our relationship with God, about our service to God. And so to, to say that prayer can save you, just, just say this prayer, is to put prayer in absolutely the wrong place. And, and that's why, you know, from the beginning, we've been saying, okay, when you encounter false doctrine, it just doesn't hold up to the pattern. There's no way that you can put the sinner's prayer in the tabernacle pattern and get away with it. It doesn't fit. There's no way you can put it in there and make sense of it. You see? And, and, and that goes for a faith-only doctrine. That goes for you know, all, uh, numerous other things as well. But <clears throat> prayer to become a Christian doesn't fit. And so like I said, they, they, they pray, well, you, you're, you're, you're going to pray your way into salvation. You're going to get baptized to show everybody. And then, like I said, the laver and the incense get switched. Um, <clears throat> years ago, I was... Uh, man, it's been several... It's been a long time. I'm getting older than I used to be. Uh, when I was, man, 20... 19, I, was, I went down to, uh, what's the big one down in Lexington? Southland. Okay. South, uh, southeast? Southland. Southland's in Lexington. Southeast. Okay, so I went to Southland down there. I went to a Sunday evening service. It's supposed to be, supposed to be one of our churches, okay? That's, that's what I was told when I went down there. And they had this service. Uh, lots of people there. They had a lady, young lady, came forward at the end, ready to be immersed into Christ. Okay? The preacher... Brought her on stage. Um, there was a lot. They had some music for a while. I don't know. Something was going on. He came back out and he said, here's the deal, guys. Our, uh, our heater in the baptistry is not working right now. So we had her say this, ask Jesus into her heart. We took her confession. And, uh, and that's, that's, you know, the Lord knows her heart and that's okay for now. We're going to schedule a baptism later on down the road with her. Uh, but uh, let's, let's welcome her into the family and rejoice and all that. So that was the message that was preached that night. What do you think of that? 
Put her in the cold water for crying out loud. I mean, you know, it's not like they, there was, I mean, it's not like there wasn't water. You know, it was just not, it was room temperature, heaven forbid, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, it wasn't even ice cold. It just wasn't hot. All right. And so we were going to reschedule this thing down the road. And, you know, I was uh, several, okay, about the same time that same year, I think, I ended up going to Jamaica and I was preaching uh, with, with TNT. We, we, Jim Spinotti and us, we went out and we we were out there for a couple weeks and uh you know the i think i preached the second night of the revival and there was about four or five individuals that came forward at the end of the of that night of course these are people that we'd have been talking to since the day before and that sort of a thing and there was a strong message the night before and anyway um you know, I I was young, and I you know I still don't really know what to do at the end of my preaching sometimes, and so it can be weird when you're in different places. You never really know what the protocol is. So they came forward. Well, the preacher came up, and so I let the preacher do his thing. Okay, now this is supposed to be the Lord's church, and so I figured he could handle this. Well, anyway, after a lot to do there, uh, they sang a song, and that's the end of it. And so, you know, we come up to this guy like, what happened? You know, they were they were ready to be immersed tonight. What are we doing? Well, we're, we're, we're just going to schedule it for Sunday. We like to do it on Sunday. You know, we can have everybody do it all at once that way. And we're like, what happens if the Lord returns? And he said, well, let's just pray that doesn't happen. I said, the church is supposed to be praying the exact odd that it happens. We pray, Lord, come quickly. You know, let's never put ourselves in a situation where we're just hoping Jesus doesn't come back right now. You know, and so what a horrible thing. And then those ladies ended up by the end of the week, I don't, I don't even know that they ended up sticking around, you know, but uh, it just, it, it's such a shame. But you, know, you see these things all the time and there are these little compromises all the time, uh, you know, where, where we don't really believe what we say we believe. And that's, what, that's really what it boils down to. Um, my big thing when I go around and I, I visit places, I'm, I'm just, I tell my wife all the time, I just, I just want so badly to meet someone that believes it. I mean, that's, that's that, you know, and you can tell when you do, and it's such a blessing. It's such a, a breath of fresh air when someone really believes what the Bible says. But so often it's, it's like, well, this is the right thing to do, but here's A, B, C, or D, you know, multiple choice. These things are just as good, and we'll compromise a little here, compromise a little bit there. You know, we'll bring in books and, and teach from books and Sunday school material that advocate sinner's prayer and, and, and baptism in the wrong way and all these sort of things, and we act like it's not a big deal, but everybody knows what's right and you know and then those those things end up causing serious damage down the line and we don't we don't think about how big of a deal this is my thing is you know I've heard people all the time say you know we'll look at a book and and uh, I remember the big fight over Rick Warren's uh the purpose-driven life all right I went on a, I mean I went scorched earth on that sucker okay <laughs> so every church around me at the time was was preaching the 40 days of purpose and so I got a copy of that thing and did anyone here ever look into it I didn't care about the chapter, but I saw that the sinner's prayer was written in there. Now, the way he had this book, okay, is all his scripture was italicized and separated from the rest of his text. I mean, he didn't put book, chapter, and verse in any of it. Now, Rick Warren did this, right? And so he's got a footnote. Every scripture he used, he typed it out, italicized it, set it apart, and then put a footnote where you can look in the back of the book to see what scripture that was. Well, halfway through the book, there's the sinner's prayer set apart and italicized just like scripture. Now you tell me that's not deceptive. And so anyway, all these churches, churches of Christ, our brother and sister congregations there, you know, they're, they're teaching out of this book. 
And I'm thinking, well, what on earth are you thinking? They're like, well, he's got some good things. I'm like, that's like asking the guy that can't swim to save you from drowning. You know, I mean, if you can't get the plan of salvation right, maybe we should stop going to them for anything else either. It's no wonder our congregations are as messed up as they are. You know, we say, well, they don't understand baptism, but we're going to look to them and how to set up the church. You know, they don't understand baptism, but we're going to look to them about how to disciple and evangelize. Now, come on, guys. You know, if they don't know the truth, they don't know the truth. Okay, stop acting like they're the experts. And so we've we got to get back to this. The, this is what the Bible teaches. Let's hold on to what the Bible teaches. Let's not compromise these things. And so, again, there's an obvious pattern with this. I've got to tell you this story real quick, too. We'll, we'll take a little break after this. I was teaching this out in Grundy, Virginia. And uh, I had a class of about 25 people. And some of these preachers that were in the class had been preaching longer probably than I've been alive. Okay, so I was really intimidated to go in here and teach this class. And... Um, I assumed everybody there knew more than I did about the topic. And so um, that's hard to teach a class like that. And uh, anyway, there was a fellow there that, uh, you know, he's just, uh, he'd made some comments during a few of the classes and was, he's just, he's just, uh, he's a rough one to argue with. He's very bold and to the point about things. But again, I had a lot of respect for him because he'd been doing this longer than I have. Well, we got into the Lord's Supper issue that we talked about two weeks ago, and he starts having some problems with where we're going with this. And see, he doesn't, you know, he was used to having a Christmas Eve service and doing the big uh, fluffy loaf of bread, dipping it into the wine and, uh, you know, and doing it at weddings and all this sort of stuff. His congregation did it every year, and he didn't see no problem with it. And, you know, and I always thought, you know, my, my thing with the truth is, like, if you've got the truth, you don't really have to defend it. You know, I mean, where does the Bible say that that's okay? I know what the Bible says about where I'm at with this, you know. And, uh, and anyway, he kind of, he got up and left, okay? And it was, it was an awkward moment in the class. Well, the next day I showed up, I tried to reach out to him that day. I talked to some of the other people that knew him. I'm like, hey, you know, what's going to happen here? Is, is there a way I can meet up with this guy and talk to him one-on-one? So, you know, because we were doing it in front of the class. It was a little awkward, you know. And uh, anyway, I couldn't get a hold of him. So we have class that night. And uh, he's not there. And I thought, oh, great, this isn't good, you know. And uh, I was really hoping he'd come back and we could talk this out. Well, about halfway through the class, he walked in. And he sits in the back. And when it's over with, he got up and he said, can I say something? And, and I said, sure. He said, I've been doing this wrong for about the last 19 years. And he said, you're right. I went home. I've been looking at the scriptures all day. I've been wrestling with it in my mind. But there's a pattern for a reason, and I haven't been following it. And that guy repented in front of the whole class. And I thought, man, if he can do that at his age, with his experience, I hope, I mean, that, I hope to be like that one day where I'm never so, you know, proud and arrogant to think that I can't be wrong about something. But I thought, you know, what a difference that's going to make. And he told me, he said, pray for me because I'm going to have to go home and we're going to have to teach this right. And he said, and I hope the word prevails, you know, and the truth prevails here. And so, you know, and it did. I mean, they, they, he taught this. It, it went over well, you know. I mean, there were some people that, well, we've been doing this forever. What's so wrong with it? But I mean, for the most part, it went over well. But I mean, what a, what a huge deal when you just use the Word of God and anything else is going to do nothing but cause confusion. It's going to deteriorate people's faith, cause doubts and cause division and everything else. And so it's so important we stick to the pattern. And like I said, there's not a form of false doctrine out there that you can put in the pattern and make work. It just falls apart here. And I think that's, that's such a big deal here with the tabernacle. Let's take a short break here. <clears throat> Um, okay, so uh, real quick, just to reiterate where we've been, um, you know, 
Again, everything that happens outside is dealing with our sin. Everything on the inside is dealing with our relationship to God. And so prayer is, like we don't find an incident there in the Scriptures where prayer is for dealing with our sin, removing our sin, cleansing us of our sin. Uh, You know, in Acts chapter 2, Peter did not stand up and say, repeat after me. You know, Paul was not told to say this prayer, washing away his sins. You know, none of those things happened. And so prayer is about our relationship with God. Uh, It's, well, we're going to talk more about what prayer's for here in a minute. Um, But realize where it sits in the pattern. You know, uh, you know, prayer is reserved for those who have been set apart. Right, those who, who have access to God through Jesus Christ, who can boldly go before the throne, those sorts of things. And so, uh, don't uh, can't miss that fact that that's uh, that this takes place where prayer would take place where the priests come. Now, um, so prayer is a privilege. Okay, uh, prayer is a privilege, and so we need the Holy Spirit to intercede on our behalf. We need to have that uh, advocate with the Father and Jesus Christ, uh, and so that's that's important. So um, now. <clears throat> Following the pattern, um, you know, we, we've got to get past this mentality that says, okay, you can do it your way and we'll just do it our way and it's all going to work. And one of the things I think that sometimes the Church of Christ gets guilty of is that we treat baptism like it's our thing instead of like it's God's thing, okay? And so then it becomes, well, this is what you all do, but our church over here does it this way. And, you know, you do your thing and we do our thing. No, it can never be that, right? And, and so I, I, make a, I make a point every week to remind everybody, you know, especially when I get down to, uh, you know, because, to, to, you know, we get visitors popping in. And, and you know, I, I think I mentioned last week uh, or last time we were here that I, I, I don't ever preach without giving the plan of salvation through the sermon or at the end. And I think, I think, Regardless of the crowd you have, every Christian needs to be reminded of that as often as we can. We're, we're up against so much. There's so much opposition to the truth that we need that just burned into our skulls. This is how the, the pattern works. And then, you know, you, you never know when, who's in here who's never heard it before. But I always reiterate that this is not about what, you know, the Glencoe Church of Christ believes or teaches. This is not about what, what Ethan thinks or what I preach. Um, every Sunday I have an invitation for anybody to to let me know that they need to sit down and study this out you know because faith without faith it's impossible to, to, to please God and faith comes from hearing the word of God and chances are if they're new that's where they're at right they they, they need to to understand what the Bible says about the plan and so every week there's this invitation let's sit down and study and and that's what that's how I do it I, I mean I, I don't know a better way to do it than to get one-on-one with people and to study um, you know, this week we had, we immersed two people into, into Christ Wednesday night. Um, you know, it wasn't because it was Wednesday night. It's, I have a Bible study that's been scheduled with, with the guy every Wednesday before our Wednesday night Bible study with, the, with everybody. We've been studying for eight, nine months together, going through it very slowly. And anyway, this Wednesday it clicked with him. He said, man, I need to do this. I know why I need to do it. And I said, how important is it to you? He said, if I've not done this right, I need to do it right now. And I said, well, let's do it right now. So we immersed him into Christ that Wednesday night. But see, it's, 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 you know, it's never been about what I believe or what I think or what our church teaches or what our tradition is. It's got to be about what the Bible says and that alone, right? It's, it's got, this has got to be God's thing. We start treating this stuff like it's our thing. Well, then that's not, you know, what's the big deal about compromising our thing? You see, it's, it's God's thing. And so we've got to stop acting like 
baptism for the forgiveness of sins to put you into Christ is a church of Christ thing. It's a biblical thing. It's a scriptural thing. It's God's thing. And then when we agree to disagree, because that's usually where those arguments go, that leaves people on the outside and it leaves them separated from God. Okay, and so what happens if a person misses out on the sacrifice, on the washing that sets them apart? They're lost. They don't have the ability to serve God. They don't have the ability to worship God. They don't have access to God in prayer, right? That's why the sinner's prayer is a dangerous thing. Not because it's different. Not because it's not what our churches do or what our preachers do. It's because it's not God's plan. It's not God's pattern. And it doesn't, it won't work. It won't, you can't bypass God's pattern and still get where you're, where you're wanting to go. And so, you know, nothing else matters if we miss out on how to deal with our sins and how to have a relationship with God, you see. And so that's, that's really important. Now, um, you know, we go back in here to the, uh, to the uh, altar of incense. Um, you know, uh, let's turn to Exodus 30 real quick. Uh, we already talked about how this thing, I guess we're working this a little backwards today. Uh, we, we talked about how this thing was built um, you know, it, like everything else, had to be portable, had to be carried through the wilderness. Um, it would have been, you know, one cubit square standing, you know, about 36 inches tall. Um, not ever, this is important, there's no, no example anywhere in the Bible where the altar, the golden altar, or the altar of incense, where it is used for a sacrifice for sins. There's no example of that being done, right? There's no place where that altar is used to deal with sins. It's only used to light incense, and incense is, is representative of our prayer, prayers going before God. And so it's only used for incense. It's not used for anything else. And so Exodus chapter 30, verse 34 through 38, let's talk about this incense. Um, the recipe here, and I, you know, there's probably some words here I'm going to butcher. Uh, I should have gave it to Jake, but all right. Verse 34. <laughs> the Lord said to Moses, take for yourself spices. Oh my goodness. Uh, stacked, is that a thing? Uh, and how, how do you say this one? Ancha? Anka? Oinka? Sounds great. We're going to go with it. Uh, galbanum, spices with pure frankincense. If I was more confident, you'd all just, oh yeah, that's it. He's got it. Yeah. Um, anyway, there shall be an equal part of each. Okay, verse 35. With it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer. perfumer that's like three times that word's got me. Salted, pure, and holy. What does holy mean? Set apart. This is special. Okay, this is special for God. Verse 36. You shall uh, beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I'll meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. Okay? Now, God says here's the recipe... And then says, very clearly, make it like this. This is what it's used for. Don't duplicate it so you can have it around your house. Don't make any for yourself. Don't use the incense for anything other than what it's supposed to be for. Okay? That's the requirements. That's the criteria. That is the restrictions that God has placed on the incense. Now, has God placed any restrictions on prayer. Okay? We got yes and no. 
Uh, what, what are, can anyone think of some restrictions we have on prayer? Okay, so yeah, your, your relationship with your marriage can absolutely have an impact on, on, your, uh, on the effectiveness of your prayer life. Sure. Okay, we, we are to pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, so... Okay, we don't pray before men to be seen. Was there another one? Uh, yeah, don't, don't just get up and repetition. Yeah, those sorts of things. Very good, yeah. So let's, let's look at a couple scriptures here. Um, first off, let's, uh, yeah, let's, let's look at... Um, well, let's see. Where do we want to go with this? Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. We'll start here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. I think we're all in the right ballpark here with this. Um, Matthew 6, verse 7, it says, And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they'll be heard for their many words. Okay? Um, you all, maybe we don't want to answer this. Have you all ever been in the situation where you're at a revival meeting or, or maybe even here on a Wednesday and there's a guest speaker, that, a guest preacher that just happens to be visiting? And so what's the protocol? You got to call on that guy to preach or to pray, but when he starts praying, he starts preaching. He ends up preaching like a whole sermon in his prayer. Starts talking, um, you know, to God like in third person now, and you know, and and then you know, it's uh, he gets up trying to make sure everyone knows he knows what he's talking about. Um, and, yeah, I've seen the guys read it. Yeah, here's one. The people out in in Grundy, Virginia, didn't like this when I brought it up, uh, but it happens. Maybe you've all seen it too. You've got a guy that is full-blown hillbilly, okay? Can barely string a couple words together without needing an interpreter to understand what he's saying. But when he prays, he turns into, I mean, he speaks the king's English, okay? Do you think he prays like that when he's by himself? I mean, he might, he might. I don't know, but I know he's never strung another sentence together in his life like that when it wasn't prayer. So why does he pray that way? So now, now here's the thing, before we, you know, it's easy to kind of poke fun a little bit at this, but let's, okay, turn, turn to Daniel real quick. Turn to Daniel real quick. Chapter 6. I'm, I'm going to try to give ourselves a little bit of grace here in this. <laughs> Daniel chapter 6. Verse 10. Okay, Daniel 6, verse 10. Of course, you know, what is it that Daniel wasn't supposed to do? Wasn't supposed to pray. Praying was a big deal, right? Uh, and so, uh, Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Bible says this, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Now, Daniel has kind of a procedure that he goes through for prayer. Okay, he's got a window in his house that's opened up. And where's it facing? Jerusalem. Okay, he falls to his knees and prays how many times a day? Three times a day. Okay, now, is there anything in the Bible that says this is how we have to pray? Is there anything in the Bible that says we've got to pray face in Jerusalem? 
Anything in the Bible says we need to pray on our knees. Okay? Why did he do it this way? I, it, it, there, there may be something. I don't know where it's at. Okay. Is anyone else familiar with? Okay. Sure. I, I think there's, there's, uh, there's, uh, you know. Well, well here, here's the thing. The, the point I'm trying to make is that he did this because this is what he had been doing previously. Okay, and I, so I, my point I'm trying to make is I, I think what happens with prayer is we fall into a routine with prayer. And I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing, right? We begin to develop habits or patterns in our prayer life. Daniel did. Was that a bad thing? No. I mean, he was consistent, right? Consistency's good. This is what Daniel did. Does it make it a sin if you do it differently? doesn't know I mean there's nothing nothing wrong with what he was doing doesn't mean that you have to follow his exact example and so I think if we're honest though because because this is what kind of bothers me sometimes kids kids will ask how do I pray and then parents will teach them how to pray parents should show them how to pray but you know there's things that we tell kids they're supposed to do that the Bible doesn't say we have to do you see and so I grew up in a family that didn't go to church, but we prayed every night before dinner. Okay, we said the same prayer. God is great. God is good. Thank you for the food on the table. Amen. Prayed that every night growing up in my house. I don't know why we did it. We did, like I said, we weren't church-going people. Bible, I don't know that we had one. I remember when we first went to find and purchase a Bible for the first time. You talk about overwhelming there's a lot to choose from there, you know, and when you don't know what you're doing, it can be really confusing trying to pick out a Bible for the very first time. We never had one, you know. I don't know why we prayed. We prayed that prayer. Um, I could pray it. My brother would pray it. My dad would pray. You know, it doesn't matter, but it was the same prayer every night. Was it, did it mean anything? I can tell you it meant nothing to me. This was just how we start dinner. That's all it meant. Now, now listen, you say what you want about that, but I, I, I think sometimes... We do this in the church, you know, we have a prayer and it's not about the prayer, it's about the prayer means it's time to end. You know, or we got to take the prayer because that's how we know the music's getting ready to start up or that's how we know that it's time to pass around the plates, you know. It doesn't become about the words or the meaning anymore, you know, it becomes, you know, well, we have to pray here and so sometimes we do this with our food. We got to pray before every meal, right? And, and, and like sometimes, you know, Christians will make fun of the, the Muslims sometimes because they, how many times a day do they pray? Five times a day on their knees facing where? Mecca. Yeah, we, we, we pray three times a day facing our dinner plate, you know. And, and you know, my, my point is like we get, we get stuck into some repetition, some, some habits about prayer, some patterns. Maybe it's things that we grew up with. Maybe it's things that we just do. But, you know, sometimes it's worth thinking, why do we do it this way? You know, these, these hillbilly preachers I know that'll preach in the King's English, maybe they've not stopped to think about why they pray that way. You know what I mean? They don't speak that way. They don't talk that way. They, they, you know, no other uh, area of their life will those same words ever come out of their mouth. But the same prayer, every time you ask them to pray, it's been memorized. It's been recited. It's done in the King James Version. And it's, it's said out loud every time you ask this guy to pray. Right? Well, why are we doing that? Sounds good. Sounds impressive, maybe. You know, we've had guys, I've asked guys to pray. I've had a guy, I had one guy told me, I never asked me to pray again. Got very mad at me because we asked him to pray. Um, 
in our congregation just asked him to, to have a prayer for everybody. Came up, after, don't you ever do that again. I need preparation. I need to write this thing out. And I said, don't worry, I'll never ask you to do this again. You know, um, so anyway, we, we run through some habits with our prayer lives, okay? Um, you know, at some point... Uh, Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exact same thing. Yeah, it kind of loses its meaning. Becomes repetitious, meaningless prayers, right? Um, you know, a lot, a lot of people, you know, growing up, I remember a lot of people, well, let's get together and pray the Lord's Prayer together. Okay, and so that becomes the, the generic, let's get together and say the Lord's Prayer. Um, I don't like calling it the Lord's Prayer anyway. Lord never prayed it. You know that? Jesus never prayed that prayer. Um, you know, we're praying for the kingdom to come. It's already here, you know. Um, and, and, you know, but, but we pray it because most people don't know what else to say, you know, because they don't have a real prayer life. That's the only thing they pray. That's when they pray. So um, here, here's some thing, okay. Uh, when we talk about our prayer life, has God put any restrictions? It needs to be meaningful, right? And so you need to ask yourself, am I doing this because... Now, now, just because you have a pattern or a routine, routine doesn't make it meaningless. Da- Daniel's prayers were meaningful, okay? But we can also get stuck in a routine. You know, I say the same prayer before dinner every night. It's meaningless. It just means it's time to start eating, you know? And so we, we need to consider our motives and what we're doing in those things. Uh, something else to consider about our prayer life. You ever heard someone pray for things they shouldn't be praying for? Okay, happens in the church all the time. Uh, well, I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be gone for the next. Uh, won't be there Sunday because my kids got a softball game. But pray for us. I ain't praying for the softball game. You hear me? Yeah, I, yeah. I'll pray it's rained out or something. But I'm not going to pray for the thing that took you away from the Lord. You you see, the Lord ain't going to bless that. You put that in front of Him. He's not going to bless it. I'm not going to pray that He does. Okay. I hope that the thing that's taking you away from the Lord falls apart. I hope that you recognize that that's not important. It's not eternally beneficial. I hope you change your priorities. I'll pray for that, but I'm not going. You know, but people ask to pray for their sins. Okay, they'll put their hobbies in front of the Lord and ask the church to pray for that. You know, their kid's ball game we're going to miss, but pray that he wins. You know, no, no, pray he never wants to play again if that's what you're going to put in front in front of Jesus Christ. You know, and I'm all for kids playing sports. Just not more important than Jesus, okay? And so, you know, you can do two things, right? You can tell your coach he won't be there. All right? That, that's, a, that's a valid option. All right. Uh, you know, one incident kind of comes to mind. Well, here's the other thing. We ever, uh, um, you know, what about the close your eyes and bow your head? Do you have to close your eyes to pray? Okay. Well, you know, we tell the kids, this is how it looks like a karate show or something we're getting ready to do. Okay. Uh, you know, nothing wrong with it, though. Nothing wrong with it. We got any examples of somebody praying with their eyes closed? Okay, what? Okay, well, he may, those eyes may have been open. He just couldn't see. Uh, okay, well, if, you, uh, if you look into Luke chapter, let's go over here, Luke chapter 18. Okay, because this is, this is worth thinking about. We, we do have an example of someone praying with these eyes closed. Nothing wrong with that. But I think it's worth taking in, you know, considering why is he praying this way. Okay, in Luke chapter 18, verse 13, it says, The tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Okay, 
And so here's a man that's unwilling to look up to heaven as he prays, right? So why, why would his eyes be closed? Okay, he's humbled before the Lord for sure. He's, he's uh, you know, those, yeah. Um, and then let's go, to, uh, let's go to John chapter 11. Verse 41. They removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Okay? And so Jesus prays. Where's he looking? Looking up, you know? And so it kind of seems to be, you know, uh, you know, you can go through some of the Psalms there. Uh, you can see some examples in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, examples of eyes being lifted up during prayer. Uh, you see the tax collector with an unwilling to look up. Uh, I, I'll pray while I'm driving sometimes and my kids start getting scared because they think my eyes are closed. I'm like, boys, my, you, can, you can pray, and, you can pray and, 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 and look at what you're doing. You know, same thing. How often are we supposed to be praying? Yeah, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing, okay? Now, we've made up some rules, I think, about prayer that just don't exist in the Bible. And so we act like there's a time and a place prayer has to happen, okay? When's prayer time? Well, before bed, right? Why? So you can fall asleep in the middle of your prayer, <laughs> you know? Uh, when's prayer time? Well, before you eat, you know? Uh, I, I, how many people believed, uh, you know, well, maybe I shouldn't ask this for, maybe I shouldn't ask for answers. A lot of people believe that if you don't pray for your food, you'll get uh, food poisoning. I'm, I'm serious now. There's people that, oh, I'm not going to eat unblessed food. Unblessed food, okay? Because if you, you know, what is it? Yeah, that's the other thing. We'll pray, Lord, let this meal be nourishing to our body. It's a, it's a whole bag of Oreos I'm going to eat, and God's going to turn it into something nutritious with some nutritious value to it. Not going to happen, you know, but that's kind of how we pray. That's true, that's true, that's true. Yeah, not with that attitude, right? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> yeah, that gets cut. No, but does praying increase its nutritional value? No. So what are we doing when we pray? We're praying for the food or we're thanking God for the food? Yeah, so we're, we're thanking God for everything, you know. So there's a big difference there, right? Um, yeah, so, you know, how we pray, like I said, eyes, eyes closed, uh, um, you know, hands together, you know, I don't see where that's at. Uh, the Bible does say is to pray without ceasing, okay? That's, that's one thing we've got. We're, we're to make those prayers meaningful. We're not to do it to be seen or to be seen as righteous. Uh, we're, we're not to uh, use many repetitious words just so that we're heard or so that we look and or appear like we're religious people. And I've met people like that. I've met people that can say the prayers and they know the religious lingo, but they've never opened up the Word of God before. Uh, and, and what's interesting is, you know, is it seems like there's people that will put an emphasis on their prayer life, but not on any other aspect of it, you know, which is uh, maybe for a different lesson altogether. Um, something that I think is, is worth talking about, though, is the fact that in the tabernacle lesson, okay, this, the Bible says pray without ceasing, and God wanted incense burning continually you know, uh, before his, his throne, before the mercy seat of God. And we know that God, it, that incense rises to God as a pleasing aroma, okay? And so that tells us that God wants us to pray. He enjoys hearing us pray. Uh, and and that's, that's an important thing about this as well. In the tabernacle, you know, the incense is burning all the time. 
And this is about our relationship with God, right? Being in that, that presence of God, the, the holy place. And the thing is, you, you can ask any preacher, and you could probably ask anybody that's been in the church for any serious amount of time, but it seems like preachers know this sort of sad information more than others sometimes. When, when people start to fall away, okay? And people fall away. I mean, you know, the first thing that goes is prayer. It's not the first thing we notice, right? Um, prayer will go before their Bible attendance or their, 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 their Bible study attendance will go. Uh, prayer will go before their personal Bible reading will go. Uh, prayer will go before their fellowship leaves. Prayer will go really before everything else. Prayer seems to be the first thing that goes when people backslide. And then, when people recognize that things aren't going well, they, they'll do all sorts of things to try to give themselves some sort of spiritual boost. And so, you know, people will, will well, maybe I'll start reading the Bible more, and uh, maybe I need to get back into fellowship. They're recognizing they're slipping away from their, their brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And, you know, maybe we need to pay more attention to uh, the sermons and things like that. And, you know, and they'll start picking up a Bible study during the week and maybe have some people, you know, all of those things. It seems like the last thing that they grab is a serious prayer life. And it, it's, it's so odd. You know, it's the first thing to go. It's the last thing people resort to. But I, I think it's because prayer's the hardest thing to fake. Like we talked about in the beginning. You know, it's, now again, you can fake it here. If all you want to do is make people here think that you can pray. But if, if you're not really in it, okay, if, if this is becoming kind of a, a burden to you if, if you're here because you feel like you have to be here and not because you want to be here, it's going to be hard for you to have a prayer life. You know, so you can show up and you can sing the songs and take the Lord's Supper and you can listen to Jake go through his sermon and, you know, and you can come for Bible study on a Tuesday night even uh, and, and you can muster your way through all that. But if you're not really in it, uh, it's real hard to fake a real prayer life. I mean, it's real hard to have a real co honest conversation because as soon as you do, you recognize that you're not where you should be, right? There, you, you're, you have a conscience if you haven't broken it yet, you know, and, and so you know that, that uh, maybe you're not where you should be and, and that you're not giving things the priority that you should be giving it to. And, you know, having an honest uh, prayer with God has got a way of, of bringing those things to the surface sometimes in your own life. Because it's hard to pray without taking a little self-inventory, right? Doing some self-evaluation. And so, I think prayer is a hard thing to fake. Uh, I think it's easy, you know, if it's public, you know. Uh, but personal prayer life, you, you can't just go through the motions of that. It doesn't work. It's not really possible. And so, you know, when we talk about barriers and we talk about having access uh, in a relationship with God, when the priests are there and they're burning incense, how close are they to God? You don't get any closer. I mean, other than the high priest, you know, the, that's as close as the priest is ever going to get. They're a curtain away. Right? It's as close as they get. And you know, there's, there's, a, there's a scripture in Hebrews 9 that ends up getting a little controversial sometimes. And we're not going to let it get controversial because we're just going to read it and take it for what it says. And, but Hebrews chapter 9, there is um, a description of the tabernacle. 
and a reference to the golden altar, the altar of incense, that kind of gets people, you know, a little confused because of where they place it, okay? Hebrews chapter 9. Let's read verses 1 through 5. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the, and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded in the tables of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Did anyone see the problem? What is it? Yeah, it, according to Hebrews 9, they've got the golden altar of incense behind the veil in with the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, and so like I said, this, this creates a bit of a controversy because we, we don't see that anywhere else. You know, it's, it's obvious through Exodus, you know, when the instructions, when the pattern was given that the altar is uh, in the holy place, not in the holy of holies. Uh, but in Hebrews chapter 9, he seems to be referring um, to the uh, altar as being in the holy of holies. Now, here, here's, I believe that this is because you are standing right at the veil burning incense. Where's that incense going? It fills all of it, you know, and so, you know, you open up into the Holy of Holies and there's going to be incense in there as well, right? The incense in, you know, that, that, uh, that's being in, in Revelation is shown as being made in the altar and filling the, the throne of God, right? And so it's, it's the same thing. That mercy seat of God is the throne of God. And so that incense is going to fill the Holy of Holies as well. And so that's, that's the idea. And like I said in Revelation, where our prayers don't stay here. You know, they, they don't stay here. They ascend directly into heaven. And, you know, it's hard to get much closer to God than having a part of what we're doing ascend directly into heaven. Right? So when we pray now, John is in Revelation seeing the, the heavenly picture there. And he's standing there and he sees our prayers rising up to the throne now. Even though we're here. Right? And so again, you know, how, how much closer to God can you get right now than that? And a pretty important thing, you know. And so we need to understand um, how, how close that is, you know, that our prayers fill uh, the throne room of God. Big deal, big deal. And so it's important then that we do it right, okay. Now we have an account <clears throat> that we've already talked about where incense was not, was not done appropriately, okay. And who was that? We got Nadab and Abihu, right? And they offered a strange fire before the Lord, and God said, "Well, it's okay. Their heart's in the right place." No, <laughs> yeah, He said, uh, "Well, He burned them up, right?" Said that there needs to be a distinction between the holy and the profane. Told their daddy not to even mourn their death uh, because they were being irreverent and irrespect or disrespectful to those things. And so uh, that's that's a pretty big deal. And so we've got this example, you know, and we look at when we look at any part of this, you know, there's a pattern for the Lord's Supper, right? There, there's there's a, a purpose for using the Word of God as a lamp for what we're doing, you know, and for prayer. Why is it important that we do it the right way? Why is it important? Why does it even matter? And so let's think about this. Does it benefit God when the lamp's lit the right way? 
doesn't, doesn't benefit, God doesn't get better because we're using the word as a lamp and as a light, right? And, and when we take the Lord's Supper, when the showbread is, is being consumed weekly, you know, when we're following the pattern for the showbread and pattern for the Lord's Supper, does God get better? Does it benefit Him? Benefits us. That we do it according to the pattern. Okay, and, and this is again something that's real important that we understand as we go through this. Everything that God instructed, it's not because, well, if you do it right, it makes me feel better, or God's sitting up there thinking, you know, it doesn't, doesn't stroke his ego, does, doesn't make him any bigger, any better, any more magnificent. Everything he instructed is for our benefit. He has always had our best interest at heart, and it's no different here. And so when the incense, when he puts these restrictions on it, we have to understand that it's for our benefit, not for his, right? It's for our benefit. And so it's real important that we get these things right. And we look back in, in, into the, the, the story of Nadab and Abihu, and they, they offer the strange fire uh, with the incense there, and, and God consumes them. And, and you've got to think, well, why? It's not like they were harming God by doing it wrong, right? And so why would God kill somebody over not following the pattern? What, what lesson is that showing us? Okay, God means what He says. It leads to other compromises for sure. Yeah, yeah, and it's also showing the pattern is, is so important to God that it's worth killing people for. I mean, God will kill people over keeping the pattern intact. Because, you know, if you compromise it there in numbers, you know, what's going to happen 100 years later? Now, we've seen this in the church, right? A church begins to compromise the Word of God, you know, 50 years ago and where they're at today. Not even recognizable as the Lord's church anymore. You know, and it starts with small steps, right? Well, we compromised a little here and we compromised a little over there. And, and it, you know, that goes back to this idea that we have to constantly keep fighting for the New Testament pattern that we're given, right? The church has to keep fighting. We've got to keep raising up a generation who can fight to keep it the biblical pattern that we see because we have a habit of not keeping a good thing going, okay? And it's not just us, right? I mean... Was Israel able to keep a good thing going? No. I mean, they kept losing it and losing it and losing it, and then God had to bring it back and bring it back and bring it back. And the church is the same thing. We've seen it over and over again. We're, we're a generation from being absolutely extinct, and so we've got to keep raising up strong, strong people, a next generation who can fight for the truth, who can not compromise, who can stand and contend for these things. And so we look at this, we say, well, it's important then that we follow the pattern. And, and out of all these things, we would think, well, prayer, that seems like kind of a personal thing, and you can do what you want with it. It's, it's important to God, and it's important to us that we keep the pattern the way that God gave it to us. And so, turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 6. He must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Is there a restriction put here on prayer? Prayer is to be done in what? Faith. Where does faith come from? 
the Word of God, okay? Our faith, our, our prayers have to be rooted in biblical faith. Not just in wishful thinking, not in how I think it should work, or oh, I think this is okay. I mean, prayer is one of those things that, I mean, there's a big religious world out there. I use that term, I guess, how it is. Religious world out there that there's a lot of ideas about prayer that's not necessarily united with what the Scriptures say. Okay, You can become a Christian with prayer. You can have your sins forgiven by asking for forgiveness from prayer. You know, you can, you can uh, you know, have God do things and work outside of His will and Word if you just pray enough. You know, there's all sorts of ideas out there that aren't, you're not going to find in the Scriptures. And so prayer is one of these things that have to be rooted in faith. We'll turn to chapter 4. Okay, verse 3, James puts another qualifier on this, I guess. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. What's the right motive? To glorify God's will, okay? Okay. So the wrong motive would be anything less than that. Would we agree with that? There was, years ago, I was at a church that had a prayer list that was about, well, it it was a whole page of a bulletin and half a page on the back. Okay, little tiny font, big... There was about 30 people in the congregation. There was about 300 names on the prayer list, okay? And we're, every week, you know, we bring bringing up the names on the prayer list and we got to pray for all these people on the prayer list. And people have been on the prayer list so long we don't know who most of them are anymore, okay? Um, but what you end up finding out, and this is true among most congregations, is, you know, what are we, what are we praying for most of the time? Physical things, Right? Someone is sick, someone has cancer, someone has a physical ailment of some sort. Let's put them on the prayer list. Put them on the prayer list. Put them on the prayer list. What are we praying for? Okay, why? Okay. You, you see what I'm saying? Like, I'm not saying it's bad that someone may feel better. But why are we asking God to get involved in that? Is, that, is it His will that they feel better? We live in a world that's broken. Our bodies break down. It's just a tent, right? You know, I mean, this, this body's going to be taken down. You can't live in a mansion and in a tent. The body has to break down, right? And so this, this tent, and then in this tent, what do we do? We moan. You all know what that means, right? It's the sound effects you make when you get up. Jake, you have any back problems yet, brother? <laughs> it's, we're at that age. We're getting there. We're starting to feel it, okay? Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, our bodies break down over time, right? Part of, the, part of the reason God set it up this way, right? And we're told that, look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He, he, he lays these things out for us, you know, and it's, it's, it's a little hard to swallow sometimes. But he says this, beginning in verse 1, We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. Look at verse 4. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. 
so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. What, God, what, what Paul's saying here is that God set us up this way where we are living in a, in a physical world and a physical body that is deteriorating and breaking down over time and that God set it up this way so that we would begin to long for what's eternal. Why? Well, because we have a tendency to hold on to the things that don't matter. Right? We put too much priority on this temporary tent that is... Bra- and you all know how tents work, right? I mean, over time, you can't prop them up forever. They last maybe a season or two, right? The poles start to break and bend. They begin to leak. You can't fit them back in the bag. And that's our bodies, okay? <laughs> Every part of that begun... That's our bodies over time, okay? And so God set it up this way because if our bodies didn't break down, right? If this world was paradise and, and perfect, if this was like we want the place that's no more tears and no more pain and sorrow right we want that no more death no more sin we would love to have that that's not here it's never ever since sin came into this world this has not been the place we want to live it's the place we're at right and so while we're here God set it up to where it all breaks down so that over time we would learn to let go Right? That we could learn that this, this temporary life that we have is not, it's just temporary. We are not meant to be here permanently. We're just passing through. We're citizens of an of a, of a eternal kingdom which is unshakable. And if this world was too good, we'd never want to let go of it. Right? And that's the problem with the world already. Without Jesus, they, they're trying to cling on to something that's not even good to start with, right? Uh, but this is all they have. And, and you see that, right? As, as life begins to fall apart on people, they're just clinging to, to make this last and to be as good as it can be. Uh, but God set this up to where our bodies will break down. We will get sick. You will get sick. Someone you love will get sick. It's part of life. And it teaches us to let go of these physical temporary things and to remind ourselves that there's something better waiting something to be motivated for and here in the church 90% of what we pray for is people's physical illness or physical sickness can you show me anything in the Bible that tells us to pray for our physical needs any examples where, where, where we need to pray for someone because they're ill what do you got okay Okay, yeah, that's true. Well, there's, there's, there's an interesting thing in the Greek there about whether that's talking about physical illness or, or spiritual illness. But that's all right, yeah. Uh, but but, but, but we'll, 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 we'll set that one aside for a second. There is an example. There's an Old Testament king, Hezekiah, right, who was facing death, prayed for, prayed for life, right? Got a few extra years on him, right? How'd that work out for him? If he'd have died... The first time, he'd have died a righteous man. But in the extra, what, 15 years that God gave him? It may not be 15. I think it's 15. Yeah, I mean, he went down spiritually downhill and died an unrighteous king. Right? So, I mean, it would have been... So the only example we have of this doesn't turn out well, right? Which is, is not good sign for us to begin with. But here, here's the thing. We, we pray for, for the wrong motives, if my neighbor, my, my, my family member, what, you know, who's lost and outside of Christ ends up getting sick, ill, whatever else, we're going to pray for them. In the church, this is what we do all the time. Well, what do we, well, we pray that their surgery goes well, that they get better. For what purpose? So that they're not, so they're more comfortable. Seems like a selfish motive, 
let's say God gives them that extra time. What are you going to do with that? It should be. How often is that the case? Almost never. So I have no problem with saying, hey, so-and-so's lost and they're, they're dealing with this right now. They're dealing with this sickness. They've got cancer, whatever. Pray for them. I'm fine with that. But you better do something with that opportunity. Otherwise, you're praying with the wrong motives. If it doesn't glorify God in some way, right? I mean, why would he be interested in this? See, why would he come through with that? And if God's going to answer the prayer, again, what are you going to do with that? Praying for a new job. You know, praying for that promotion. That's fine. What are you going to do if God gives it to you? How are you going to glorify God in that position? How are you going to glorify God with your promotion? How are you going to glorify God with whatever it is you're praying for? And if He's not a part of why you want it, you're praying with the wrong motive. Okay? Something we need to consider. Now, we all know we've got to pray in the will of God. We've got to pray based on faith. But I think we've separated that idea from most of our prayers. At least, in, at least together when we come together. And so... We, we pray for people who are sick, but we pray that, that through that situation gives us an opportunity to share the gospel with them. You know, that, that maybe they could find comfort in Christ. Maybe they could recognize, you know, two opportunities, we'll, we'll close out with this, that, that should never be lost, okay? Is, is if you know somebody who's getting ready to be a father or a mother for the first time, it's time to start talking to them because their minds are thinking, well, things are changing in their life. They're thinking about consequences, raising the family, the example they're going to set. Talk to them about the gospel. They're, they're, their minds are open to that right now. And then anytime there's a funeral of someone close to them, Ecclesiastes tells us it's better to be in the house of mourning than the house of, uh, of celebration because that's the end of life and for all of us and it causes a man to think about it. And so when someone close to you dies everybody all of a sudden is starting to think about life and death and eternity where normally it's not even on the radar. Most people are just trying to get through the day. They're not concerned about where they're going to spend eternity right now. And I get it. I mean, I totally get it. And I think we've done a, a, a not done, done any justice to the gospel by acting like it's something that only benefits us in eternity and not right now. Uh, a lot of people are having a hard time just getting through the week, getting through the day, getting their marriage together, keeping their kids in line. You know, they, they need help with the day-to-day stuff and, and, and they need to understand that Jesus can help with that stuff too. You know, it's not just about where you spend eternity. It's day-to-day life. But, um, you know, there's, there's a bigger picture to these things, you know. So anyway, you know, use the opportunities you have. Pray for the opportunity. You know, when people are going through a hard time, pray, but pray to be used as an instrument in that. You know, pray that God use me in this situation. Maybe I can come to their aid. Maybe I can give them some comfort. Maybe I can use this as a way to get in there and open the gospel up to share these things with them. Maybe you've gone through something similar in your life, right? That's a great opportunity to, to, to be that, that light, that example, and say this is how a Christian can deal with this. This is, this is how Christ can get, get someone through these kind of situations. You know, use that, you know, but don't be, don't be afraid. Don't shy down from that. If you're praying, prayer is preparation. Okay, and, and preparation to get involved. Uh, it used to drive me nuts. I think I've shared this before. I was in a congregation where we, we would pray every Wednesday night, and every Wednesday night someone would bring up the family across the street. The family across the street. We'll pray that they come. You know, it's like one day I was like, hey, has anyone, do you guys know their names? You know, have we ever, any of us, and I was included in this. I mean, I realized this too. I, I'd never walked across the street, knocked on their door. Nobody else had either. And here we're praying to God to do something with them. Well, who do you think God's going to use to do that? That's got to be us. Got to be us. So prayer's preparation. So if you're going to pray, be prepared to, to be used in that situation and consider your motive for why you're praying for that.
All right, I think that's a good place to stop for tonight. All right, um, next week we are getting into the veil and we are getting into the Day of Atonement. Um, if any of these studies are, well, they're all important, but in the next two weeks we're going to get into some, some pretty big theological discussions about how atonement works, uh, some things about the veil uh, that uh, are probably going to be a little different than what you've heard most of your life, um, those sorts of things. So anyway, um, next couple weeks, you know, be prepared for that. Be in prayer for it. Uh, like I said, some, some pretty big theological things we've got to get through there with the Day of Atonement and, um, and all of that. <laughs>